Good morning, good afternoon. Uh, Matt Johnson again here from DTCC ITP Product Management. Uh, pleased to broadcast and bring to you guys now our Bioside uh, podcast interaction. I'm very, very happy, and she will give her own introduction, uh, but a good friend of mine, someone I've known for a very long time, uh, Leah Oyman, who looks after markets and regulatory initiatives at Franklin Templeton. Well, first of all, uh, thank you so much for taking the time. Um, it, it really, really fascinating to get the buy side view um, on CSDR. I'm, I'm sure the conversations are going to move into the discipline regime and go lives relatively quickly. Um, but I guess from a Franklin Templeton point of view, I mean, and especially the job that you do and your responsibilities, I'm going to guess that you're well and truly in the thick of CSDR at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be able to share some of our insight from a buy-side perspective. Um, we are very much in the thick of it. <laughs> um, we have been for a little while now. Um, and I think from a Franklin Templeton perspective, I think we've been very proactive in general, even before this regulation kicked in or is about to kick in. Um, or was even discussed, we had already um, started looking into our fails management process and trying to avoid fails wherever possible or work around um, the pre-matching process to make sure that all our trades are ready to settle on settlement date. So um, I feel that um, we can have a lot of processes and procedures in place that, that makes us be in a great position ahead of CSDR, but like everyone else in the industry, uh, we will be hit by lots of different unknowns. And there are a few different areas, even if you are ahead of the curve and you are doing fields management already, that um, this new regulation brings in and that we have to consider, we have to prepare for even further. Yeah, lots to do in a very short amount of time. And I just want to touch on something you said in regards to avoiding trades failing because obviously um, something that's very close to our heart here at DTC is the prevention phase. If you prevent trades from failing, then no failed trades equals no penalties, no buy-ins. And, and um, uh, uh, it sounds like the mantra that's being taken at Franklin Templeton. Are you passing that message on to your to your funds and your colleagues and you know the, the, the people whose money you're managing? Well, that's always what we've tried to do um, even before this, you know, all this discussion around CSDR kicked off because we do we look to avoid um, interest claims and anything that's attached to the fails uh, process uh, as much as possible. Um, and so, unfortunately, it's not always up to us um, to make sure that the trade settles on time. <laughs> exactly, um, yeah. There can be many different players, can't there? Exactly. So there are many different areas um, that other players will probably have to you know, do more to avoid fails, like broker shorts is a great example, and that's probably what the buy-in kind of process is looking to address as well. I'm going to put you on the spot slightly with a couple of questions. The first one being um, February 1st, 2021, uh, the perceived implementation date of a discipline regime. First of all, do you think this is more of a formality now? And second of all, if it is a formality, do you feel that the market is ready in general? Um, 
I don't think it is. Uh, I think it is a date that we all have to work towards and be very conscious that a lot will be expected from us as an industry. Um, so it cannot be taken lightly. Um, there are some very tricky areas around the buy-in process in specific that um, we need some, maybe not necessarily answers from the regulators, but as an industry, we might want to work closer and come up with some um, ideas and proposals on how to address them or try to have a more um, kind of group approach to them. So, um, you know, whether we're going to, for example, whether we're going to have the front office involved or whether we're going to have purely the back office organizing the buy-in process and only informing the front office when um, the process is finished and completed and booked into our systems. Um, and also, what do we do if there isn't a buy-in agent out there that would perform the buy-in for the security type that you have failing? So there are many questions that us as an industry might want to work together towards answering or having a concerted approach on how to deal with them. Yeah, and I can, I can see by the direction of the conversation. So the, the, the pieces of settlement discipline regime that I guess keep you up at night is probably more so the buy-in than the actual failed trade penalty regime that's going to come in. Well, I'm kind of hoping that we are going to get to a point where we're not going to have very many fails at all. And because we're also conscious that we don't want to fail a transaction, we're not going to get to the point where we need to then perform a buy-in. Um, I, I hear a lot of people talking about metrics out there right now. So a lot of vendor systems using these metrics in favor for selling their products. Um, and to be quite honest, the metrics out there right now are based on history right not based on the future and they are going to change drastically i'm hoping um and so they might not be very relevant to what's going to happen from the first of february it's a great view actually and something i've not actually thought of because yeah we, we talk about metrics all the time and, and ifs and buts and maybes but you know the, the world could change significantly from a post-trade standpoint between now and february and, and hopefully the optimist in me the optimist in me thinks that you know, there, there will be less fouls by February, but, but in the scenario where there isn't, and I think you, you've mentioned again about um, the perceived metrics and volumes of buy-ins, have, have Franklin Templeton looked into this? Have you, have you kind of tried to give your front office folk a projection of what oh, may yeah. be coming? Or, yeah? Absolutely. And it, yeah. in the same level as the vendor systems, we kind of use this internally to leverage some things too, right? Because when you look at the the existing metrics and you do some calculations and you think, oh, gee, okay, we've got so many fails that are going to today would cause a buy-in. It looks absolutely terrifying on the screen and anyone out there that's involved in the process looking at it will go. Come on, come on, share some numbers, it. share some numbers, come on. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I wouldn't be able to share exact numbers, but today we don't perform any buy-ins on our side. Uh, so Franklin Templeton don't initiate any buy-ins as a policy uh, unless we have to through external 
you know, regulatory requirements, which I don't think there are any out there right now that we'll have to enforce. Um, but if we look at the figures right now, um, we would have well over hundreds of buy-ins, if not every month, every week or every day. Um, so going from not performing any buy-ins at all to having to do so many a day is unbelievable. It's crazy. Well, thank you for being so candid. I was expecting you to mind my own business, but that's interesting. And also, it's a it's a topic that's come up before with many buy side firms I've spoken to, is that the concept of a buy-in is alien to them. So, I mean, is that going to have some big repercussions for the market? I believe so, yes. Um, if, if you think of the whole buy-in process and you think that um, you, you're looking to buy a security which is not available out there um, because somebody else has not delivered to, to the party that you bought it from. <laughs> um, and you have to try and avoid those instances, um, you're going to see, I believe you're going to see a drastic change in how the transactions are going to be performed in the market. And um, you're going to have to forecast or settle your transactions a lot more efficiently. But if you don't do that and you come across instances where you, um, certain security types, you're going to have to either perform a buy-in very often or most of the time you don't have a, a buy-in agent that would do it for you because they can't support that security type. Then you see yourself going back to the front office very regularly telling them that that security type isn't available anywhere and they have to cancel their order and rethink their strategy, right? <laughs> so, um, the, I can the, imagine those conversations go down really well. Amazing, yeah. Um, and that's just one side of it. The other side is how do you deal with your cash management process? Because you're expecting that security to be in um, and your cash to be paid away to that counterparty we bought it from. But um, it's, that's not going to happen. You have to then cash settle that transaction instead. That money will have to come back into your accounts. And you have to very quickly figure out what you're going to do with that money before the end of the day because you might be breaching some limits with your counterparty exposure. So uh, you don't want to have so many or so much cash with the custodian because they're considered as one of your counterparties. And you need to then post that in, say, overnight deposits, which, let's face it, they're not great. Today, we have negative interest rates everywhere. <laughs> so what are you going to do very quickly with that cash so you don't breach your daily uh, exposure with your counterparties as well? So there are a few headaches that will come with the cash settle process, which I don't think a lot of us in the industry are considering just yet from the buy side perspective. Sorry, go on. I, I was just going to say that um, I, I do want to actually touch a little bit on, on the, the cash compensation component that might happen. Um, but so I guess where is so the in regards, and obviously you've you've highlighted a few things I've not actually thought about and didn't actually know in regards to all these underlying factors that, that a buy-side firm needs to take on board in regards to buying. So for you, I, I assume that there isn't really one huge pain point for buy-ins, i.e., you know, only one buying agent sourcing liquidity, you know, trying to rebuy in something that failed at the first attempt. Is is there like a 
a real significant pain point or is it just that one thing can lead to another that can lead to another? Um, I don't think there is one significant one. I think I've mentioned a couple that we haven't thought of, but we might come across more instances that kind of lead on to um, different areas that we probably couldn't consider. Because if you think of the whole process right now, individuals that, are, that feel are most impacted in the organizations when it comes to CSDR are operational individuals. So they are back office individuals. These individuals don't have a view into one, the strategy of the overall funds that are involved. Um, and two, the different compliance um, matters that you have to consider. And so when you start then bringing all that into the mix <laughs> um, and considering that those individuals aren't necessarily focusing so much on the impacts of CSDR right now, then you're going to uncover quite a lot that we haven't considered. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of unknowns. I guess it's that classic, the known unknowns that are out there. But I guess from a front office perspective, I mean, there is a view that, you know, when things are penalised, penalties need to be paid, buy-ins need to be, you know, paid for and accounted for. You know, the front office are probably going to get a bribe with that cost. I'm, I'm assuming that, that you're heavily involved um, and you've, you, you're heavily engaged with your own front office folk and they're aware of the pitfalls and what's coming. But have they got a view as to where that buying process should sit? Is it, do they deem it a front office activity or will it, will it be deemed more of a middle office activity? Oh, it's a hot topic everywhere right now. <laughs> um, there are two different sides to it. Um, one, you know, within our processes and our regulatory reporting side of things, what is the view from the regulators, what's the view from our compliance department around back office booking transactions? Um, back office don't normally trade, they don't agree a deal with the counterparty, they only confirm those deals with the counterparty. If the back office is now going to take over the process and um, start um, being part of it and booking the buy-ins, one, you're going to see record in your systems as almost like a trader in the back office booking that trade. How are you going to report that to the regulators if it turns out you do need to report that transaction to the regulators? Um, two, if you then want to move that completely to the front office, um, there are many constraints around um, timing. So when do you cancel that trade? You have to make sure that it's really fully not settled because miraculously the counterparty might have had some shares and might have partially settled it <laughs> from the time that you know that you thought it was failing to the time it, you then cancel and rebook it. So there are some aspects that are very much within the operational world and some aspects that could very much be in the front office world. So it's a grey area and I understand if anyone in the industry is on the you know in between on the border not knowing where to sit this. <laughs> but as always the back office yeah. will probably take it take the hit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the ups guys will take the fall as always. It's you know, it's a very interesting one. I mean, yeah, I mean if the front office guys do do agree to take on the process. I mean, the engagement between back, middle and front office is going to be key. I mean, you've touched on 
uh, partials. And we, we know there's, there's some trade associations that, have, that are very voiceful around, uh, you know, auto partially would be a great thing to help, you know, reduce the size of, of trades that are failing. But obviously the front office folk don't get a view of that unless they're told. So what would that mean for you guys? Would that mean more reporting? Is it some guy just running up and down the stairs every 10 minutes advising the guys what's going on? Or how, was that, how would that look? Yeah, we at this moment in time, we are just trying to figure out some way of getting that communication spot on. Um, we do have uh, operational individuals that are, work very closely with the trading desk. So that shouldn't be an issue. We should be able to achieve um, that communication through that workflow. Um, but then how do we target any of the other concerns around um, timing on the information coming from the custodian, um, cancelling that trade, and then also making sure that it is processed in a way that you're not causing um, the NAV impact, you know, the, the calculation on the net asset value of your funds because you were considering that position to be there and now it's not going to be there. It's going to be replaced by cash. So we're still trying to iron out some of the kinks that we see in that workflow stuff. Yeah, I don't envy that job that you have there. And I, and I think you touched on something previously as well, a few minutes back in regards to the lack of buying agents. And obviously the discipline regime calls for a buy-in to be executed via a buying agent. And I think at this point in time, I hope I'm right in saying that there's still only one institution that's publicly announced that they're bringing the service to the market. I mean, what impact is that going to have for you guys? And only having one place to go? Well, one, it might actually be easier because um, you only have one counterparty that you need to set up on your systems and you need to link with and reach out to for your processing of that buy-in. So for whatever they can process a buy-in, fine, you know, we, we know exactly what to do, where to go, where to contact. Um, when you have more than one, then it becomes a little bit more difficult in trying to connect everything together and follow the right logic on where do you route this? Is it this? Did they support the security type or did they support that security type? And how do you do that logic within your system? So from that point of view, it can be much easier. But then again, they might not support all the security types that we might need them to support. We might, or where we will see the need for a buy-in to happen. And that's where the whole cash settle cycle, uh, process might have to kick in. And so, again, having to then go back to the front office and say, we'll see that trade you've just booked that is going to settle tomorrow or it should have settled four days ago. Um, it's actually not happened. You, you don't have that security. And by the way, don't go and trade with that broker again because it's likely that they might not be able to deliver again. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it's, it's a great point, though, because I think um, the need for accurate analytics and data reporting is going to be key because like you've just said, you, you can't keep trading with a counterparty that you know is going to fail. And so, and, and at the moment, would, would the would the front office or the dealers would they take a middle office view on that, or would they tend to think, well, the commissions are cheap, the price is great, I'll let the back office guys fix that. But going forward, I mean, is that something they're going to need to take into account? They are going to have to take into account, but not only just take that into account, but also probably have to process that manually to. Uh, bypass all the 
um, automated order processes that they have in place. And it's not as straightforward as me saying, don't approach that counterparty again. Well, they have an algorithm that runs in the background of their order that basically establishes where the best execution is going to be achieved with what counterparty, and then that deal gets booked. Um, so, so for them to bypass that automated approach, they're going to have to take that order away from the normal workflows. Um, somehow still try and get some kind of best execution attached to it because the algorithm is there to, you know, in certain instances, in most instances, achieve the best execution uh, in a fair way. So, it, yeah, it's going to be pretty complex for the front office to be able to do that. Wow, that, that is a big, big problem. And, and you've touched on before um, in regards to, like, you know, in the scenario where a, a physical buy-in can't happen, we go down the cash compensation route. And from what I'm understanding from conversations we're having and, and market kind of uh, market opinion is for equities, you know, there, there's some rules around, you know, the, the, the venue with the most volume or the closing price of the most relevant venue. But for bonds, that can open up an even bigger problem, can't it? Because, you know, his, you know traditionally bonds aren't traded on exchange. Yeah, exactly. Not too much of an expert on front office matters, but I can already foresee a few, a few issues around that. Yeah, yeah, probably more than a few. I would dare to say. Um, look, look, it's, it's been fantastic um, picking your brains, as it were. I know, obviously, we, we need to be uh, quite strict on time, but I do want to take a few minutes. Um, I've done it with all of the guys that have, that have conducted the podcast with me. I mean, if there was any advice you would give to the people that, that listening to this podcast in relation to, you know, mitigating their exposure to the settlement discipline regime. Um, if you could sum that up in a minute or two, how would you do that? Um, so really looking at sales management, trying to make the most out of the two, you know, T plus two that we normally have within the markets that are in scope here. Um, use as much as you can fails management tools or we call them pre-matching tools because we don't want them to fail. We want to try and use the trade date till settlement date kind of gap there to make sure they're matched and ready to settle. Um, also um, look into the um, after settlement, after fails uh, processes that you have in place. So dealing with any claims or trying to establish the, the failed charges, not just automatically taking the hit for it or letting a client account take the hit for it. Um, you might need to have a team of individuals that will take that monthly file coming from the custodian with all the failed charges and reconciling it, going through it and making sure that you're um, addressing all the different charges and allocating them to the different parties that might be able to cover for them because it's likely that it might not be always the buy side's fault for that transaction to be failing. So there there will always be a party that could be attached to that uh, fail charge um, and um, hopefully that will then help you um, minimize the impact to your accounts and your clients as well. Great advice, and I, I, I agree. It's um, 
looking at looking at the post-trade process and where we can streamline that as much as possible. Um, well, I just want to take the time now to say thank you so much to Leah Oyman from Franklin Semperson. It's been great talking to you, Leah. Oh, I've actually learned quite a lot from you from this podcast, and I didn't realise we was actually speaking for this long. I'm looking at the time, when, when I thought we was only on the call for about 10 minutes or so. So, uh, so no, thank you again. Um, and just to sign out from DTCC, hope you guys enjoyed listening to the podcast series we've put out so far. Um, just to reiterate, this was the buy side's view of the settlement discipline regime and CSDR in general from Leah Oyman from Franklin Templeton. I'm Matt Johnson from DTCC. Take care and stay safe.